Welcome. Thanks for joining us today on The Venture Podcast. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you along your journey. Well, Venture, as we continue in this series on resilient faith, we're going to take a little bit of a turn this week and over the next few weeks. Because the last several weeks, we've looked at these practices of a resilient faith. We've looked at those five things that were highlighted in Kinnaman and Matlock's book. This week, I want to turn it and talk about some of the issues that I think are really important, especially some of the issues that the next generation struggle with and things that will impact your faith journey. You know, this week, I I want us to think about how you're rooted in life. In fact, I was reading the analogy that uh, Hope Jaron, she's a science writer, and uh, she wasn't talking about faith. She was literally talking about plants. She, she's an expert in it. And she said, you know, the, the most fascinating and most critical part of a plant's life is where a seed embeds. I mean, think about it. From that moment, that plant has no other choice of where it's going to do life, where it takes root. She writes in it, she says, no risk is more terrifying than taking that first root. A lucky root will eventually find water, but its first job is to anchor. Once the first root is extended, the plant will never again enjoy any hope of relocating to a place less cold or less dry or less dangerous. Indeed, it will face frost, drought, and greedy jaws without any possibility of flight. You kind of feel it in that little plant's life, the need that it really takes root in the right place. Now, here's the fascinating part. If it takes root, the roots can go deep, 20, 30, 40 feet, depending on the plant. And, and it can pump water out of the ground. It gets the nutrition out of it. As she writes, she says, there's literally nothing that will make or break it more than where it takes root. Now, I say all that because as we think about resilient faith and we think about next generation, and specifically, I'll just let you know on this message and the message to come, I think about my kids. I've got teenagers, I've got young adults, and in a lot of ways, they are taking root in life. And so as we talk about these issues, I've been framing it in a way, how would I dialogue with them? How would we talk about it? And specifically the issue this week, because I think it's so important that they take root specifically in God's Word. I I think the Bible is is the soil that really will determine if you're going to have a resilient faith that continues to grow or not. I, I love how David puts it poetically. Look how he describes it in Psalm 1. He says, How blessed is the one who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway of sinners, or sit in the assembly of scoffers. Uh, He's describing, like we talked about that practice, one who has cultural discernment. They they don't get caught up in everything that's said around them. But he goes on and he says, instead, this person finds pleasure in obeying God's commands, the Lord's commands. Look at he says, he meditates on his commands day and night. He's like a tree planted by flowing streams. Literally, his life is rooted by a stream, by that nourishment. And it yields its fruit at the proper time. Its leaves never fall off. He succeeds in everything he attempts. 
Now, what David's describing there very poetically is really, I think, for those of us who are Christians and that we're raising next generation, we want them to have the kind of resilient faith that he's describing. They're rooted in life. They're rooted against what will come, whether it's frost or storms or all the difficulties of it. And, and notice specifically, he says, this person is particularly rooted in God's word and what God says. Now, I say that because if you study what's happening with next generation, especially not just the ones we've been looking at, but you go deeper to Gen Z and beyond, the, the impact of the Bible, the intake of the Bible, is unbelievably decreasing with every generation. I mean, less than 10% of Gen Z would say that they read the Bible with any regularity. And the belief in the Bible is going down. And, and so when I, I put the contrast of what David says, here's what a resilient life looks like, and then I look at the studies of what's happening in it, and again, I, I'll just frame this, this message in particular I think about my own kids and the kind of life I want them to have. And so I want us to wrestle a little bit, maybe some of the issues around the Bible. Why are they walking away? Why are they not reading it? What are some of the questions that we have? And, and it's a little bit different message. I'm going to walk through some of the questions that I get as a pastor about the Bible. Not just from young people, from all different people. And maybe you're watching this and you go, yeah, I've got a lot of questions about the Bible. And sometimes we don't even feel like we're allowed to ask them or we have our doubts. And, and I say this not only for my kids, but I, I can think back in my own life, especially as I, I was teenage years and even young adult years, even in seminary and ministry, I'd have those times where you stop every so often and you go, wait, what if everything we believe is just because we believe it? What if it's really not true? What, what if I've just been told this all my life? What, what if the Bible's not true to the way I believe it. Now, I know I've had those doubts in seasons of my life, and maybe you have or have them now. And I'd want you to hear, I hope you feel that venture is the kind of place you can ask these kind of questions. Uh, we may not have quick answers for all of it. I do think there's truth. I think there's things we can point to. And we're going to wrestle with some of the questions around the Bible today. And again, I don't have time to really do justice to all the questions. But there are answers out there. And there's resources. And maybe we can begin a dialogue with this, that if you have some serious questions, that we can continue on in a way that you don't have to feel like we don't talk about them. And I think that's really important as parents, I think as pastors, those of us who are leaders. How do we dive in these things together? So as we think about some of the questions, I, I've just kind of summarized some of the core questions I hear at times, and maybe they're ones that you have around the Bible. Uh, the first one, I, people would kind of say it this way, the Bible is a good book, but is it really God's book? And, and you'll hear this, people maybe that are in the church and are respectful. Now, some of you wouldn't even agree with that. Maybe you look at it and you go, yeah, I don't even think the Bible's a good book. And, and a lot of people out there will say it does harm. I'm not going to argue that point. I, I'll just start with the place. There's a lot of people, most of the world, in fact, would look at the Bible and they go, it's a good book. It's got good sayings. It's got good teachings. It's got good stories. But then when you come to that line and you go, is it really God's book? 
is it really more special than the Hindu writings? Is it more special than the Quran? What's distinct about that? And, and as you dive in a little bit, it, it's like, have we put that on it, or did it really exist? Does it see itself in that way? Now, I think it's important. You've got to let the Bible speak for itself. And so if you read through the Bible, and I've read through the whole Bible, by the way, many times, and I've had the privilege over the years, one of the things I'm so thankful for is I've got friends who are of other faiths, and we have open discussions around it. I've had the opportunity both in college and then four-year seminary program to really study the Bible in detail. And I'm really thankful for that education. I mean, to study it in the original languages and, and to really dive deep in it, to see some of the science of how it's put together. And I don't say that like I've got all the answers, but I do say that I have spent a lifetime in this book. And I have studied it at level, and I continue to read because I think it's important to hear the latest resources in that. And I want you to hear, as someone who studied the Bible for years, I'm more convinced of it now than I have ever been. And that's because of the resources that are available. And so as you look at it, and, and when you think about the veracity of the Bible, look how the Bible presents itself. Psalm 119, 160, David, this whole psalm, and it's a poetic psalm, he's writing worship in it, but he makes this statement, he says, all your words, he's talking to God, all your words are true, all your righteous laws are eternal. In fact, you'll hear this truth claim throughout the Bible, that over and over again, the writers of the Bible will speak to the fact that God is always true, that God never lies, that God only reveals truth, that God, as he's revealed himself in his word, is true. This truth claim of the Bible itself, now some of you go, well, Tim, that's circular. Whether you believe it or not, I think it's good to put on record this is how the Bible presents itself. In fact, over 600 times in the Bible, you'll, you'll see the phrase, thus saith the Lord, that the person who's speaking, the person who's writing, literally saying, I got this from God. This comes directly from him. In fact, there's over 3,000 references in it to it being the word of God. And, and I say that because you'd be hard-pressed to read through the Bible and not recognize there is a claim here that it's different than other books. There, there's truth claims here. And it is representing itself as this truth coming from God. And, and so before you just dismiss it, you, you've got to embrace at least how it presents itself. Now, what modern people will often say, and this is usually where it comes, of a lot of people say, yeah, but how could it really be true? How could it be from God? when it's so full of errors or contradictions. I mean, there's just so many things that are not true in it. And sometimes you'll hear that. People will throw that out there. Go, oh, there's hundreds of them. And when you start digging in and go, okay, well, okay, what errors? What, which ones specifically? And sometimes you can go online, you'll find certain ones. And I'm not saying it's not without difficulties. But usually it breaks down into a few categories. Some of the so-called errors are conundrums, things that are hard to understand. There's an explanation. You may not always like it. doesn't mean that it's an error. Uh, I'll give you one that's been thrown out for a while. Where did Cain's wife come from? You go back to the story in Genesis. There was Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Later, Genesis 5, it says Cain is married, takes a wife. 
And so a lot of people go, oh, there's an error. Because it only said that Adam and Eve had sons. And so where did this woman, there must have been other women on the planet, or is there some other contradiction or error that's in it? Now, again, the Bible doesn't tell us where Cain's wife came from. One explanation, maybe one that we don't really like a whole lot, but it could have been his sister. In fact, that's what a lot of people would say. Now, you hear that and you go, well, it didn't say that. Well, it didn't say it wasn't that. Now, again, I'm not saying it solves every difficulty, but before you throw out and say, well, it's obvious error, where there's silence, you can't fill it in with error, per se. Uh, other ways that you'll hear, a lot of times the contradictions, supposedly, about the different stories. Especially the stories around Jesus, the four Gospels. We'll look at those more next week and focus specifically on Jesus because I think it's so important that we really embrace the truth as it's presented around him. But as you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they tell similar stories at times. Sometimes they're talking about the same events and they describe it in different ways. And a lot of people look at it and go, oh, see, it's a contradiction. In this story, it talks about one angel. In this story, it talks about two angels. In this story, it talks about this woman coming. This story said there were other women. This story, he fed 4,000. This one, he 5,000. And recognize some of these, they're actually different events. So that's why the details are different. And then it's also the impact of different witnesses. It'd be like in a court of law. If you went into a court of law and every witness said the exact same story, with the exact same words, you'd actually walk away if you were the jury and say, this isn't accurate. Somebody's trained them. They're trying to present this the same because they're covering up something. See, that's the beauty of the Bible. You have these stories. You have these witnesses. In fact, as experts have looked at it and they look at the different ways in it, you actually don't find contradictions. You do find differences. But it's the differences of perspective in that. I, I, one of the key ways that people tell me, well, the Bible's full of errors, they'll throw out a, a miracle like, are you going to tell me Jonah actually was swallowed by a whale? Now, again, you may not have a category for miracles. You may look at it and go, as soon as you come to something that cannot be proven scientifically, then it's obviously an error. That's a presupposition on your part. Here's all I would say about the Bible. When the Bible presents miracles, it doesn't present them like they're normal events. That's the whole reason they're in the story. That they're looking at it and going, this has never been done because it's a story that's telling us how God has interacted with humanity. Now, now maybe your worldview has no place for God doing that, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's an error in the story. We're just coming at it with different presuppositions. And Depending on how you approach science, we can look at it in different ways. See, as we, we think about the Bible, here, here's what I'd want you to embrace in that. One, the errors that are supposedly in the hundreds, there's some difficulties. They're not what they're presented to be. And I'd encourage you to research it for yourself. I think you need to look at it as well. The Bible was written unlike any other book. I mean, it even makes that claim. Look, look how Paul puts it. He says in 2 Timothy, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's literally, it's inspired. It's breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. I mean, that's a radical truth claim right there. That's not true of any other book. There was an inspiration of what God was doing. 
Uh, Peter said the same thing. He says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now notice as Peter's talking about, and he's talking about this process of how we got the Bible. He says, these guys that wrote the Bible, they didn't come up with it on their own, but as the Holy Spirit moved in their hearts, moved with them, it's this combination of God working, but also through a human agency, through their styles, through their writing, through their perspective. We have these books that were written that are inspired and without error. You know, the fascinating thing is, if you look through the Bible, I always love looking at how archaeology has confirmed the details of the Bible. I mean, in the Bible, there's stories and cities and people, and it's very specific, and it speaks very specifically how these people and how these places intersected with history. And for the last hundreds of years, archaeologists have dug specifically in the Holy Land And they've been able to confirm over and over again, wait, these details actually are true. In fact, it it really is mind-blowing to think after hundreds of years of archaeology, there has yet to be one archaeological find that disproves any detail of the Bible. One. There's not one that's come forward that they go, oh, we found this. Obviously, the Bible's not true. And yet there are hundreds where the details of the Bible have been confirmed. That doesn't even take in the fact that, you know, Peter's talking about these prophecies that come through Scripture. I mean, we have so many prophecies in the Old Testament that were written hundreds of years before they happened, hundreds of years before Jesus came. You read in Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22. You read in Micah 7. Events about how Jesus, where he would be born, how he would die. What would happen to him in his life? And over and over again, they were confirmed. See, the the Bible's unlike any other book. And and even as I think of how it's assembled, just, just think about this for a minute. And this is unlike any other book. If you think about the fact our Bible, it was 66 books that we have. That's how we break it down into the 66 books of the Bible. It's written by 40 different authors. I mean, that would be hard enough alone to get 40 different authors and go, hey, we're going to write one united book. You'll have 66 books. Different ones of you will write different parts of it. But it needs to be united together. And then add on top of that, it's going to be written on three different continents. On top of that, in three different languages. In Hebrew, Koine Greek, and some in Aramaic. And then add on top of that, you're going to do it over a 1,500-year period. If I told you I'm going to get 40 different people on three different continents and three different languages over 1,500 years, and they're going to write one resource that's united together, all of which has the same theme, it points to God's glory and the eternal plan of salvation. All of it right there in the Bible. I mean, there's no other book that's been written like this. And so when we look at it and you go, hey, is it a good book, but is it God's book? I would go, I know of no other book that I even put in the category that would be close to even calling it God's book. And I think the Bible's proven itself to that. 
Now, a second question that I often get around this is how do we know the Bible we have is even accurate? I mean, we don't have the original books. We don't have in Paul's handwriting, Moses' handwriting. And, and if you know anything about it, a lot of people ask, well, wasn't the Bible put together, wasn't it assembled much later after the fact? And, and so if, if these books that we have today and the Bible that we have was assembled so much later and it was after the fact, how do we know this even matches what was originally given? That's a great question. In fact, it's, it's one of the things that we study in seminaries. One of the things, if you study how the Bible came together, it really is a fascinating process. And I don't say it's fascinating because it was like, oh, there's some unique story behind it or conspiracy. I, I'm often amused how Hollywood always wants to make this a conspiracy. Uh, a few years ago, Dan Brown with the Da Vinci Code and others, and they, they really want to bring forward, oh man, there's big conspiracy around the Bible. If you look at it, it's really not as exciting as it's presented. Um, in, in fact, there's a whole science behind it called textual criticism of how to study this. And if you look at it, I, I get kind of fascinated with it. A lot of people might be bored. But if you go, it, God superintended that process in a way that we have great reliability in it. Now, here's the key. Anytime you have an ancient book, you always have to study it how many manuscripts, how many copies do we have of that ancient book? And then how old are those copies of it? And so to have the best attested source, you want something that has a lot of copies of it, because that way you can compare the copies and see are they accurate. And you also want them to be very old. You want them to be very close to the original source. And the great news with the Bible is we have that. We have that both with what we call our Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament, the 39 books that are in our Protestant Bible, they're the same books that Jesus studied in his day. Now, how do I know that? Well, there was a council in 90 AD in Jamnia. And that council, again, looked at what they called the 22 books, because they didn't separate ones that we do. So when we have like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, they just counted those as one books. But they had the exact same as we have. And so Jesus, when he studied and when he read the scriptures, he was reading the 39 books that we would look at today. Now, the problem in history, if you know anything about Old Testament history, from that time period in 90 AD to 900 AD, in 900 AD, we have the Masoretic text. It's the best manuscript, surviving manuscript we have of the Old Testament for a long time in history. And so scholars came along. Remember I told you about those prophecies earlier, especially the ones around Jesus that were written hundreds of years before Christ? A lot of scholars said, wait a second. You're telling me the oldest copy we have of the Old Testament comes from 900 AD? Well, those prophecies aren't real. See, they were skeptical about it. And, and here's what they thought. At some point, because the last book of the Old Testament was written in 400 BC. So some point during that 1,300 years, somebody came later and they said, after Jesus lived, you know what would really confirm Jesus? Let's put some prophecies in. Let's say that Isaiah said this. And let's say the psalm said this and let's add, and they added all these things and then we'll act like they were written before Jesus and then it'll look like they confirm him and it's this prophetic thing that makes the bible look true 
Again, you, you might look at it and you go, well, how do you disprove that? Well, in 1947, you know, it's pretty fascinating. A little shepherd boy was out on a hillside and he threw a rock and suddenly he heard what sounded like pottery breaking. And, and he went and, and over, it was an area right by the Dead Sea and they found a cave there and in the cave were all these pots and in the pots were manuscripts from the Old Testament, the books of the Bible. And here's the great part. They were able to date these, that these manuscripts were from around 150 B.C. That's what the, the oldest of them dated to, all of them in that time period. And so suddenly we were able to go from 900 A.D. to 150 B.C. And, and when they found them, they found all the books of the Old Testament except for the book of Esther. There's no copy of Esther there. doesn't mean Esther's not part of the Bible. They just didn't have a copy there. But, but scholars immediately thought, we're going to be able to tell which were parts of the Bible and which weren't. We're going to see all these additions. We're going to see where they inserted the prophecies. Because these are well before Jesus' lifetime. And so when they laid those manuscripts out side by side, when, when they looked at them and compared them, you know what's fascinating? There's not one word difference. Over a thousand years, it had been copied accurately. Because here's what you need to know. Those Hebrew scribes, when they would copy a manuscript, they'd stop at the end of it and they'd count from the front and from the back. They knew what was the middle of it and they'd count the letters. And if the count was ever off by one, by one letter, they would destroy the manuscript. Now, why would they do that? In an age when you had to write it out by hand. Remember what I told you earlier when the Bible claimed, thus saith the Lord? This is the word of God. See, they recognize it like that. They go, man, if, if this is God's word, we can't misrepresent it. And so you know you've got that confidence. Now, the New Testament's even more fascinating. The 27 books. And, and, and the reason it is, is there's such a short time period between when the books were written and the very first copies we have. And we literally have twenty to 30,000 copies in different forms of New Testament books. There is no ancient book that has as many copies that are as old as our New Testament. I, from textual criticism, it's the most verified book out there. And so as you look at it, you can know with confidence, yeah, this is actually what was written in it. Now, you may say, yeah, but didn't they finally put the New Testament together in the 4th century? And I would say, yeah, in 325, the church councils, and there was a series of councils over that 4th century, the, the, at Nicaea and Carthage, Constantinople, where the church, the church fathers came together, and they used a process to go, we need to recognize, because there was a lot of books that were being brought forward that said, oh, we're part of Scripture too. There were a lot of cults. There were a lot of different groups. And that's where your Dan Browns and others, they love the conspiracy of what's left out. If you actually read the history of it, there's not much conspiracy there. They used a very detailed process because they go, we need to recognize what is Scripture. Not we're going to vote and pick, but they're recognizing what the church was already using in it. Now, if you look at the process, they, they used a five-fold criteria. The first criteria was, was this book connected to an apostle? Can we take it back to one of the originals that were around Jesus and connected to that? 
Second, is it accepted and used in the church as scripture? Is it already being circulated as scripture in this time? Third, is it internally consistent both with what was revealed in the Old Testament and in these books? Fourth, is it historically accurate? I mean, if there was a book that said historical things that Christ didn't do, they immediately tossed it. They looked at it. And then the final thing they said, is there spiritual attestation? Does it present the gospel in this way that the, the whole New Testament together does? And, and so as you look at that, all those criteria, and, and they looked at it, and some of the books they debated. The book of Hebrews, they're like, who's the author of Hebrews? We're not sure we know that. So they had to use the other criteria. I, I say all this, guys. I just want you to realize there was a process and, and what I like about that, some people you hear process and you go, oh, well, I thought it was scripture. Like God was supposed to just literally drop the whole thing out of heaven. I love in the whole process that God used human beings. The Holy Spirit moved in the hearts of human beings that we have a book that is inspired and without error. God moved in the history of his church to make sure that book was protected and recognized. It didn't become Scripture because those councils said so. It became Scripture because it already was, and they recognized it as so. It'd be like the Mona Lisa. The Mona Lisa is recognized. Some people say it's the greatest painting in the world. Now, it's not the greatest painting in the world because somebody said so. We say so because it is one of the greatest paintings in the world. In the same way, the Bible is not the Bible because a group got together and they voted on it and they said so. The group got together and they go, we recognize where God is moving and leading and how he's worked with this. And we already recognize what is. Now, a third question. And people say it in different forums and you hear it here in the Valley as well. You can't believe in science if you believe in the Bible, can you? Or flip it the other way, you can't really believe in the Bible if you're a person of science. And, and as you hear that, it, it immediately puts those two at odds. And unfortunately, that's a narrative today that you kind of have to pick your camp. Are you a person of faith? Are you a fundamentalist? Are you one of those Bible people or Christian people? Are you a person of science? And, and as you look at that, just, just hear me coming out of the gate, especially young people. You don't have to live at odds with that. Uh, don't let someone box you in just because they said that's the two camps. Now, again, I, I'll just be straightforward. I am a person of faith. I believe in God. And I recognize that it's by faith I believe in God. I mean, to have a God who I believe is outside of time and space, he's overall, there, there's no way I can use a scientific method right now to prove his existence to you. But I think there is evidence of his existence. I think there's evidence of his existence in our world. I think there's evidence in the Bible. And by faith, I believe that. Now, maybe you're an atheist or agnostic. Maybe you don't believe in God at all. And I would say you've come to that decision by faith as well. You probably disagree with me, but I would go, it was a faith decision on your, point, on your part. You took the evidence that was out there, and by faith you've decided God does not exist. Either the cosmos is all there is, 
Uh, Carl Sagan years ago, I, I, I like to watch the old Cosmos shows. And I love science, by the way. I, I, I love especially what astrophysicists and, and others, because in so much of science, for me, it points to God. But again, that's part of my worldview. I, I would just say for those who've excluded it, I mean, there's no non-circular argument for the case that our perception faculties are reliable. There's no way for you to argue that your perception faculties, that you're not actually in a matrix. You've got absolute faith in your own perception faculties for you to say that there is no God. Now, we could wrestle about this forever, but I'm starting with the place that all of us have to make a faith choice in that. I would just hate for some of you, and, and especially for those of you, maybe you're graduating high school or you find yourself in a university setting or you find yourself in a company, and it's almost presented in this way. For the first time in your life, you find yourself in this place and they go, oh, it's great that you grew up in church. Oh, I'm so, yeah, oh, the Bible. That's a good part of your life. But, but now you're an adult. And smart people don't believe that. Smart people don't believe in the Bible. Smart people believe in science. And they cast it in a way that, I mean, I think for all of us, it's like, well, I want to be a smart person. <laughs> I don't want to be one of those ones that's boxed in by my religion. And, and I, again, I would just encourage you, don't believe the categories and, and the against. In fact, it, it, it's interesting to me, if you look back through the history of science, there's not always been this antagonism towards science and faith or science and Christianity in particular. In fact, if you look at the history of science, I mean, just some of the great names of science that we built it on, you wouldn't have science without Roger Bacon and William of Ockham, who both laid out the empirical method that we built science off of. <laughs> they both were Franciscan priests, by the way. They were friars. Roberts Boyle, Boyle's Law, strong believer. Newton isn't what we'd call an Orthodox Christian, but he believed in God. His theory of gravity was, was rooted in his belief system. Galileo, who stood up to the church and the scientific world when he declared that the earth is not the center of the universe, that actually we rotate around the sun. And, and again, it was a misappropriation of scripture, but it also was a misappropriation of science. It was Aristotelian science that had been embraced that came up with that perspective to begin with. And Galileo, who was a Christian, and even though he's persecuted by the church for his scientific statement, had a strong faith in Christ. Uh, again, I can go through the names. Uh, Michael Faraday. How many things are named after him? The Faraday effect, the Faraday cage, uh, all of it. Faraday, strong believer in faith. James Maxwell, Lord Kelvin, Gregor Mendel, Guys, there's not this antagonism between the two. And so maybe if you find yourself, maybe it's a university, if you're in a secular university and you find yourself in that setting and, and you hear them as they immediately say you can't have both, just remind yourself where you are. We're, we're coming at the world in different ways. It doesn't mean that it's true. And the other thing that you need to know, in the modern university today and the modern science today, there are so many men and women of faith. They've not jettisoned either their faith or their scientific belief. In fact, uh, one of the resources I highly recommend, I put it in your notes, is this book, Confronting Christianity. 
and uh, Rebecca McLaughlin. She lives in Boston, and she does work on the different campuses there. One of the campuses where she does different work is MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, a bastion of science by anyone's estimation. She says it's interesting, if you were to walk the halls of MIT, you'd run into nuclear science professor Ian Hutchinson, who's a Christian. Or aeronautics and astronautics professor Daniel Hastings, electrical engineering professor Jing Kong. Uh, none of them were raised Christians, by the way. They, they came to faith in Christ as scientists. Artificial intelligence expert Rosalind Picard. Chemistry professor Troy Van Voorhoos. He's a grad student at Berkeley when he came to Christ. Biological and mechanical engineer professor Linda Griffith. Dick Yu, Chris Love, Doug Lothenberg, history professor Ann McCants, neuroscientist and former MIT president Susan Hockfield. Now, again, as you look at that, it's just a few names. But, but here's why I throw it out there. I, I would hope, one, as Christians, we're not scared of science. We'd move into it. And then secondly, recognize that this antagonism between science and the Bible. Guys, the Bible is not trying to be a scientific book. It's not even trying to be a scientific book. But likewise, science has not disproven the Bible. And in fact, as you read through the Bible, it matches what science tells us. That the general revelation of this world tells us that there's a God. And then the special revelation of the Bible tells us specifically what he's like and what he's done. I, again, I'm not a scientist. I, I love watching it and reading it and just reading the latest studies. In fact, a book that I'm reading right now is uh, Stephen Meyer's Return of the God Hypothesis. And uh, Meyer, if you've read any of his work as a scientist, unbelievable, unbelievable thinker, and what a strong Christian. I'm excited. He's actually coming to venture in March. And so we're going to have him come and speak on the God hypothesis and walk through this material. We'll have him preach on a Sunday morning, and then we'll also have him do a seminar on Sunday night. And I, I would encourage you, if you're scientifically inclined or you know someone that you go, yeah, they, they would really appreciate, and we'll tell you more about it before he comes. But this is a great book. It's not an easy read, but it's a great book that shows us that this really isn't a valid question in this. You really can believe both. And there's so many men and women who do. A couple of other questions, and you can see Meyer's book there, just if you want to you find it on Amazon or find it out there, Return of the God Hypothesis uh, by Dr. Stephen Meyer. A couple other. One, you don't believe in the Bible literally, do you? Uh, again, I get asked that, or, or people would go, okay, when you say you believe in the Bible, I, okay, I understand you believe it kind of spiritually, underbelieve, you know, the principles of it, but you literally believe that. And then people will poke fun at it because they'll go, okay, if you literally believe the Bible, and they'll pull out some obscure thing. Well, doesn't it say in the Bible you can't wear a shirt made of two different cloths? Uh, some obscure rule in the Bible. In, in fact, the it's, it's a humorous book, but there was a, a book written by A.J. Jacobs. It's called The Year of Living Biblically, One Man's Humble Quest to Follow the Bible as Literally as Possible. 
And so he, he took this book and he said, I'm going to apply it and live this out as literally as I can. And he, he lived in New York. So he grew a beard and he started wearing clothes like the Bible and he started eating kosher. And, and then he describes kind of the humorous ways he tried to live it out because he said, well, he read the law that you're supposed to stone people if they break the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath day, he would go to the park and look at who, people that were breaking the Sabbath. And since you can't kill people by throwing real stones at them, he'd throw pebbles at them and then turn away when they looked at him. Now, he's writing the whole thing humorously. And his point is, no one can live this thing literally. In fact, listen to his words. He says, millions of people say they take the Bible literally. A 2004 Newsweek poll put it at 55%. But my suspicion is that almost everyone's literalism consisted of picking and choosing. People plucked out the parts that fit their agenda. Now, I would agree with him in a large part. I think a lot of people like to pluck and choose in it. But for those of us who are Christians, that we would say, yeah, I think it's true, and I think it's without error, and I think God actually means for us to live it out in life today. What do you do with the A.J. Jacobs? What, what do you do when people ask you these, and maybe they've asked you these kind of questions before? Well, one, you have to take the Bible as it presents itself. G guys, when you look at the Bible, it's not like any other book. In fact, it's a collection of books, and people fail to recognize this. The Bible has history. And so there's historical books that are telling me what God did in the past, some of which he no longer has the expectation that we do now. And he's made that explicitly clear. Where? In the Bible. And so I'd say to an A.J. Jacobs, yeah, when you go look at those rules and all that, you're talking about a time period when God was forming a nation and he gave them a law and the different parts of that law had civil parts of the law that was just true for that country. It had ceremonial parts of that law, things they were to do as ceremony. And there were moral parts of the law, things that were based on his moral character, of which that still apply to me today. But he makes it real clear in the later revelation how that fits with my life now. So I don't just jump into parts and go, oh, how do I do that? I have to take it as a whole, for one. Two, I've got to recognize the different genres. So is it a historical book? Or is it a poetical book like Psalms? Or is it Proverbs, wisdom literature? Is it a letter that was written to a specific church? Is it the unique genre of Gospels that are a specific way of telling about this life of Christ? Is it prophecy that's going to use a lot of figurative language? In fact, the Bible's full of figurative language and metaphors and doesn't expect us to apply them literally, woodenly. Let me give you an example. When Jesus looked at his followers and said, I am the vine, did anyone think he was actually becoming a plant in that moment? When he says, I'm the good shepherd, did it mean he wasn't a carpenter? He suddenly became a shepherd by trade? Or when he says, I'm the lamb. See, we know all those things. They're, they're metaphors. And so as we read them, we go, okay, yeah, I interpret it in that way. In the same way, you have to look at the Bible and go, how is the Bible presenting itself? Am I actually interpreting it the way the author meant for it to be written? Now, again, this is where study comes in. This is where for those of us, hopefully, who teach the Bible, that's why we do years of training. It's not just this simple book that you just kind of plop it open. 
and you can immediately determine what's the context in that. And I'll just say this to Christians. Sometimes we've done damage because that's how we approach the Bible. We just kind of plop open and I pick one line and I go, oh, well, that's what it means to me. And we end up confirming the suspicions of a guy like A.J. Jacobs. As you look at it, here's what you also have to look at. The stories themselves are telling us what God thinks and how he's shaping humanity in this story about Jesus. And so as one pastor said, you know, the first time he read Genesis, he didn't like it. Because you look at how these heroes of the faith are treating women. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They were polygamists. They had more than one wife. They buy and sell them. They they live like the culture of the day. It it wasn't until later, though, he read The Art of Biblical Narrative by Robert Alter. Alter was a Jew who taught at Berkeley. And Alter said, you need to realize what the story is telling you. It's showing how God is changing the culture of the day. The, The two prime parts of the culture of the day were polygamy and primogeniture, which meant that the oldest son got all the power, all the money. And as Alter pointed out, if you read through it, it points out that every time the patriarchs participated in polygamy, it always went horrible. It wrecked the family. See, God's showing in the story, no, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And so let me show you how this part of culture doesn't work. You know, it's even more fascinating, the primogenitor where the oldest son always got the inheritance, got the power in that. God in the story keeps choosing the younger son, keeps upsetting the way the culture would do it. And so I say this because I'll hear people at times, they go, well, the Bible has horrible parts. And I go, yeah, because God's showing what was going on in the culture of that time and how he's redeeming it. What is he trying to teach us through the story? Now, people will go, yeah, but people have used the Bible to do horrible things. I mean, look at the Crusades. Look at slavery. People have actually used the Bible to defend slavery in this cult in this country. Christians have in the past. And, and, and hear me, I have no defense of it. If anything, they have missed the teaching of Scripture. One, they've pulled it out of context. Because the slavery that's even described in the Bible is not the chattel slavery that was practiced in this country where people were owned and where they were owned based on their race and they were discriminated on based on race. That didn't even match the slavery as it was practiced in the Bible. Much less if you look, remember I told you how the story of the Bible is showing how God's redeeming within the culture? If you look at what God did with slavery and the freedom that came and the freedom that came through Christ, it's the reason that Christians led the forefront to abolish chattel slavery as it's known in this world. And so somebody doing that doesn't mean that the Bible was wrong. It was a wrong application. I I put it in this way. I heard one scholar said, uh, you know, you can look at the Beatles. And I love the Beatles. I mean, I I love the Beatles. And I know even as I say that, that kind of outs me as an old man. Uh, In fact, a moment ago, if you thought, as soon as I said I love the Beatles, if you thought to yourself, oh, that's cool, you're old too, okay? Old people, we like the Beatles. And, and the, the White Album, great album. Now, the song Helter Skelter, Charles Manson of the Manson clan, they, they said that song was inspirational, said it was speaking to them, was part of the reason why they 
slaughtered what they did and the activity they did. Now, would you blame the Beatles for that? Would you go, oh, well, that was McCartney and Lennon. That's their fault in it. Or would you look at it and go, yeah, no, that person totally misapplied that. It's totally antithetical to everything the Beatles would be for. But they did it in the wrong way. Because there's a lot of people that have taken the Bible and they've twisted what God said. They've used it in the wrong way. But that doesn't mean you can put that back at his feet. You've got to look at his story, his character, what he's done. Again, we're just dipping the service on all these questions. There's so much more. I I just would finish out, though, with this. And and this is specifically for those who... uh, when, when you look at this, is the Bible really that important to my faith? And, and I would just say this, this is young people growing up in the church today who even though they claim Christianity, really aren't in the Bible. And if you look at Scripture, and, and a couple of verses I'd end out with you. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The writer Hebrew said, man, God's word, the Bible, it's not like any other book. It literally goes to the soul of you, the spirit of you. It literally cuts through everything else. And I I would encourage you, if you're not spending time in God's Word, if you're not letting it, it penetrate your heart and your life, if you're not letting that God-breathed book do what it can only do, you're not going to have direction in life, but you're also not going to know you. I think there's so much confusion today about who we are and our identity. There's so much confusion in life Because people are not taking advantage of this living word that's active in our life. So you're not going to know you. And if I go back to Psalm 1, you're not going to experience the kind of resilience that David describes here. You're you're just not going to have a resilient faith because you've not planted your life. You've not held firm to what really matters. He is... We close out just a reminder of an old story about Emmett Smith. Now, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. I know that's hard for you Niner fans out there. But Emmett Smith has the rushing record, ran for more yards in, than anybody else in NFL history. I'm not making the claim he's the greatest running back of all time, but he, he ran for more yards. But you know, when he was a junior in high school, he had a problem. He kept fumbling the ball. And, and his coach finally grabbed him and said to him, I don't care how great you are as a running back. If you don't hold on to the ball, you're not going to make it. In fact, you're not going to be on this team. And Smith said he always remembered that conversation. That, that from then on, if he did anything else, he would hold on to the football as he was doing those great things for his team. And I just say all that because I want to look you in the eye, and especially some of you who are kind of maybe trying to do the Christian life, some of you who maybe you've embraced a faith, but it's not going very deep. 
Some of you are kind of flirting on the edges. Listen to me. You're never going to be who God's called you to be. You're never going to have resilient faith if you don't hold fast to the Bible. If you don't make this where you root your life. And maybe you still have questions around it. I know we just covered barely cursory some of these. Keep asking them. There's answers. Keep searching. There's resources. I've put some books and some resources that you can look at the end of your notes there. Read some of those if you really have serious questions. And for those of you that would say, well, I don't really question the Bible, then hold on to the Bible and root in the Bible and see what God can do that your life can flourish in the soil of His Word. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You. I thank You for Your truth. I thank You for Scripture. I thank You for all that You've done. Thank You that You loved us so much that Christ came as the living Word, God and man in flesh. Thank You so much that You sent us the Bible over that 1,500 years as the written Word where the Spirit, God, and humanity provided us this text that is inspired and without error. Lord, we thank you for the truth that we can root our lives on. We pray that we would hold it with conviction and that we would be men and women of resilient faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope today's message encouraged you in your journey of faith. To keep up with the latest messages and what's happening, make sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit venture.cc.